Let's hear it for that U.S. Women's National Team. Woo! World Cup winners. One of the greatest soccer players of all time, women's soccer players, is not an American. Um, there's some great ones on the American team, but the Brazilian who goes by the name Marta. Marta in her prime was nearly unstoppable, and in her career she accumulated six FIFA Player of the Year awards. And now at age 33, this may have been Marta's last World Cup, her fifth World Cup. That's amazing. Marta and Brazil were knocked out of the tournament by France early in the knockout stage. And when that happened, reporters flooded the field because they sensed the, the emotion of the moment. This is Marta. This could be her last game ever in a World Cup. Looking at the camera, Marta used her moment in the spotlight not to talk about herself, but to inspire the next generation of young girls playing soccer. The girls who would one day surpass, hopefully, her record of 17 World Cup goals. And this is what she said. It's about wanting more, training more, taking care of yourself more. It's being ready to play 90 minutes, then 30 more. This is what I ask of the girls. There's not going to be another Firminga. There will not be a Marta tomorrow. There's not going to be another Christiane. The women's game depends on you to survive. So think about that. Value it more. Cry in the beginning so you may smile in the end. Cry in the beginning so that you may smile in the end. In other words, put in the hard work now so you can reap the reward later. Be willing to suffer now for the glory that awaits you later. Profound words, challenging words, and words, frankly, that we might expect to hear in the realm of sports. It fits. It's an accepted norm that to be good at athletics, you need to put in the uncomfortable work of training and conditioning and working through pain and working through setbacks. But in our culture, we do not expect pain and suffering in many other areas of our life. Outside the arena of sports or physical fitness or the inevitable events of life beginning and life ending, we don't expect to suffer very much as normal middle class American people. Our culture values comfort and convenience almost above anything else. Comfort products from clothes and cosmetics to climate-controlled cars and custom mattresses and pillows are billion-dollar industries. We expect to be comfortable, and the economic engine that peddles comfort products proves that the market is not even close to being saturated with products that claim to shield you and I from pain. Now, don't get me wrong, I had a crown place last week, and I am so thankful for a little anesthetic. Like, I think that's God's gift. <laughs> Some level of modern comfort, right? That's a good thing. But the idea that experiencing pain or discomfort is somehow an exceptional human experience is completely devoid of reality, and yet almost every commercial gives us that type of gospel. The obsession with comfort and ease has seeped into the church as well. 
Somehow we've twisted the gospel into a form of insurance policy rather than a call to call to follow Jesus. We've turned the worship gathering into a suite of services to entertain and educate and socialize rather than an actual work of service. It's called a worship service or an act of devotion or an act of sacrifice. A couple of years ago, I got a call on a uh, Saturday before an Easter Sunday. It must have been three, four, five years ago. I can't remember which. I, I take this phone call from a lady who says, hey, I saw your Easter service advertised on your website. I'm like, yes. She goes, that's great. I want an evening service because I can't make it to church in the morning. But I think there's a typo. I said, what, what is the typo? She says, well, it says 5 to 6.30 p.m. I said, no, it's 5 to 6.30. She goes, 5 to 6.30? What could you be doing for an hour and a half? And she hung up. <laughs> you know, it's as if indicating that worshiping the risen Jesus on his day that he's, we resurrect, you know, like Easter Sunday, like that's too inconvenient to be at an hour and a half service. By the way, if we're an hour and a half tonight too. So anyway. <laughs> the church in general hasn't done a great job over the years that I've been alive to provide a counter-argument to the comfort first kind of ideal. If anything, our churches have accommodated so that our worship gatherings and our preaching has tended towards the positive, feel-good vibes of a good TED talk rather than the news that Jesus is like our king and demands us you know, to follow him, that following him demands our allegiance. And while it is the most life-affirming, life-giving proclamation ever made, the gospel will also make us uncomfortable if we really live it out in the real world that we live in. That's just a fact. And the shock of things being harder than we think they ought to be is hard to swallow. Have you ever done something, set up, maybe you went to college for the first time and you thought, you know, I got this, I got good grades in high school. But then you get, you move away from home and it's not just the academics, it's just being isolated. It's being on your own and it all of a sudden hits you like, this is harder than I thought it would be. If you've gone through something that's harder than you expected it to be, it is a shock to the system. And sometimes people go to see a therapist or a counselor to help them with the shock, to help them walk through the shock. So many young married couples are surprised that their marriage isn't always like it was when they were dating. And it sure isn't like it's portrayed in Hollywood. And one of the best things that counseling can do is normalize the experience. To have someone tell you the truth, hey, it's okay. Marriage is hard on everybody. <gasps> really? It's not just me? I'm not doing it wrong? Well, you, you might be. We need to talk. But, <laughs> but you don't have to be doing it wrong to make it feel like you're doing it wrong. Marriage is always hard. Sometimes we need someone to normalize the feeling that, you know, I lost a loved one like three years ago, and it's still like, you know, it still creeps up. Am I doing something wrong? No. Grief takes a long time. You know, we need people to normalize the fact that things are hard, right? And our text this evening in the book of Acts, I think, normalizes for us as Christians that being a disciple of Jesus in the world is hard sometimes. So, if you are able, would you stand with me as we read Acts chapter 5, 27 through 42. 
When they had brought them, they stood before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross or on a tree. He's the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And then he said to them, men of Israel, take care uh, what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody and a group of about 400 people uh, joined with him. But he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this, a man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. So they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. So they went on their way, and from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple, and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching that Jesus was the Christ. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for uh, the encouragement it brings us. Thank you also for the challenge, the normalcy of when we follow you, we will come into conflict, and that is not weird or abnormal. Uh, And Lord, I pray that you would bring this passage to life for us and give us great courage. Amen. You may be seated. If you're uh, visiting us this evening, or maybe you've part led streets and you've just been traveling, it's summertime, let me just kind of recap where we've gone so far in the last week or so. Uh, by the time we get to this part in the passage, Jesus has risen from the grave. He's met with his disciples, promising them power from on high, which is the Holy Spirit, and, and that this power would come upon them and that would empower them to be Jesus's witnesses in the world. So Jesus ascends in glory and is seated at the right hand of the Father, which is Bible code language for Jesus is in control of stuff now. And the disciples receive the Spirit, and they begin to preach boldly in the name of Jesus. And through the power of the Spirit, they perform these healings, and they they create a new community of Christ. The Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem were not big fans of the apostles yet and their preaching. They had them arrested in the middle of the night, but then an angel of the Lord came and magically, angelly, broke them out of jail and tells them, hey, keep preaching. In fact, go to the temple. And so there they are preaching in the temple courts and the authorities come and take them 
and put them on trial or they have this counsel. They say, we've given you strict orders not to continue preaching in this name, and yet you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Those are big charges, and they're charges that the apostles don't deny. They say, hey, we've got to obey God rather than you, rather than people, rather than men. Now, the leaders didn't want to hear that they were wrong about putting Jesus to death. They did not want to hear that, the son, that they had killed the Son of God. But if they were ever going to be forgiven for this, they had to come clean and repent. And the same is true, really, for every single person. Following Jesus is uncomfortable because it requires us to be honest about who we are and the way we think, the things we do, and the things we fail to do. Jesus can forgive any sin, but he won't make you confess. It's impossible to be forgiven if you don't think that you need it. The religious leaders didn't think that they needed forgiving. In fact, they were so angry, they wanted to kill these followers of Jesus. And that's where a leader named Gamaliel, a Pharisee, steps in. Gamaliel is known to be the disciple of a famous rabbi named Hillel, one of the kindest, wisest, and most temperate of the Pharisees. Gamaliel cautions these Sadducees, these other religious leaders, uh, and he warns them and steers them away from doing violent harm to the apostles, unless you consider threatening them and arresting them and flogging them violent harm, well, then he's okay with that. He cites these two other revolutionaries who rise up with messianic announcements, and they were systematically put down by the authorities. And Gamaliel advises the council to take a wait-and-see approach to the Jesus movement. And his reason is simple. If it's not from God, it will fail. But if it is from God, we won't be able to stop it, and we might find ourselves fighting against God. Now, Many a preacher has made Gamaliel the main point or the main character of this passage. After all, he seems to be the voice of reason and tolerance that would fit perfectly in Bellingham, wouldn't he? Some even go so far as to employ the so-called Gamaliel principle, a type of ethics that is a wait-and-see sort of approach in life. And certainly there are times when it is wise to choose your battles and take a wait-and-see approach. Like, Jess is going to put up a photo here. Hairstyles in the 80s. Like, let's say you're a parent. I grew up in the 80s. I wasn't a parent in the 80s. But if that was my kid coming home, I think I might just choose my battles and say, this too shall pass. Or, or the, next, the next one there, yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or somewhere in the 90s, a music producer said, I know what would be a good idea. A third wave of ska. This, t this too came and went because it was not of God. <laughs> all right, all right. All joking aside, there are times when it might be wisest to do nothing, like to wait and see and let things play out. It works a lot in parenting, I think. But in the passage, notice the one who gets to decide. It's the only one with power and privilege. The Gamaliel ethic may appear wise and noble from the perspective of other powerful and privileged people, but it is not so 
with those who are being acted upon. And the Gamaliel ethic is woefully insufficient for dealing with the issues where silence or the privileged position is actually a form of complicit agreement at best and passive violence at worst. Take racism. If people in power just wait and see, well, with racism, that's an abuse of that power. That's an abuse of that power. If we just wait and see, I can tell you from the Bible, it's not of God already, right? Minorities suffer while the powerful just sit back and watch. As people of God, the Gamaliel ethic is not one that's given to us as something we can practice. We have to teach our kids better than the world does. We have to demand more equity from our politicians than they will provide on their own. Taking a wait-and-see approach to sexual abuse is not good enough. We're not going to police ourselves. We have to do better than just waiting until something happens. And we have to actually step out and be proactive. That's why Jen Milson, our children's director, has uh, uh, brokered several opportunities for all the staff and volunteers, uh, both all the church staff and then the children's volunteers, uh, to take the Safeguarding God's Children's course. We don't want to be reactive. We don't ever want to have that happen here, right? We want to be proactive. Wait and see won't work in that situation. Taking a wait and see approach on immigration is not good enough. And I'm happy to see that some individuals in our church and then the church in general, um, I know are speaking out and doing things about the inhumane conditions at the border. You know, whatever your politics about the border and immigration, we need to check the scriptures for our guidance about how we treat the stranger and alien, at a minimum, how you treat someone in your custody. Even when I was in Coast Guard law enforcement, in order for me to carry pepper spray, you know what I had to do? I had to be exposed to pepper spray, and it hurts. And the reason that they have me do that is because they say, the minute you use this on someone, they're your responsibility. They fall off the edge of the ship and drown, that's on you, you're a murderer. Right? So when people are in our custody, we have to do better. We can't just wait and see and see if it'll blow over. That's easy to say for me in Bellingham right now. And we could go on and on and talking about mass incarceration or the glass ceiling for women and minorities in the workplace, teen suicide, opioid addiction, public policy. Wait and see won't work for those things. My point is, after that rant... My point is that the point of this passage is not what Gamaliel did or said or didn't do. The point is the apostles' actions and their allegiance. They obeyed God rather than people and counted it as an honor to suffer shame for Jesus' name. Peter and the apostles suffer under the religious establishment in Jerusalem. Now, as the story of Acts goes on, uh, the gospel spreads to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people of the Roman Empire. The followers of Jesus at that point will suffer less from the religious establishment because now they're going out into the empire. And they'll suffer more from the hands of the world in general. 
In our passage this evening, Peter and the apostles are having an in-house conversation with other Jewish leaders. Remember, Christianity is a Jewish movement. Peter and his buddies, the apostles, they are Jewish men. And so they are having in-house conversations with the religious leaders. And theirs was a hyper-religious setting where everybody believed in the same God and the same Bible, and they're arguing about the same sacred texts about the will of God and about what the Messiah might be like. Now, these are very different conversations than the one as Paul would have later on with pagan Corinthians and Greek philosophers in Athens. And you and I, living here in this time and place, we're much less like Peter in this story in Acts 5, and much more like Daniel living in Babylon in exile, or more like Paul when he's teaching the Ephesians. We should not ever expect the world, the non-Christian people around us. We should never expect them to follow Christian ethics. Like it always just shocks me that Christians are shocked that people aren't acting like Christians. Not even have people agree with us. Why would we ever expect that? It's like weird stuff in this book. Have you read it lately? We worship a Jewish guy who died on a cross and was resurrected from the grave. Like I don't expect people to believe that who aren't a follower of Jesus. And many times, our beliefs will put us at odds with the values and assumptions of the world. They just will. Take nationalism, for example. There's a vast group of people all around the world, every nation has them, but let's talk about our country. There's a vast amount of people in our country who espouse a sort of religious devotion to the supremacy of our nation. And this ideology would seek to put our nation's interests above others to the point of doing harm to the other citizens of sovereign nations. In order to further our interests of national security or economy or pride. And the worst sort of nationalism is the kind that views national politics, whatever they are, Republican, Democrat, Independent, doesn't matter, that views national politics as somehow an instrument or God-ordained, or a national leader as God-ordained. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to be first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We know, we know it is good and wise to be a blessing to the place we live, to support the governments and policies where we can support those things, to be a blessing to every land that we live in. But we are not to break the great commandment of loving God and neighbor as ourselves so that we can elevate our devotion to national agenda or political party, uh, no matter what party we support. If you and I walk a gospel line, if we follow the Lord of this book, we will be at odds on several fronts with the Republican agenda and the Democratic agenda and independence and Green Party and socialism. I mean, just, I mean, it just doesn't matter. There's not like a gospel party. And I don't, I don't think there should be until Jesus comes back. Maybe you're part of an extended family that is divided politically. Anybody like that? Thanksgiving dinners or family reunions. Woo! There can be a sense of discomfort, right, to say the least. And again, I don't think we're called to convince anyone of our point of view necessarily. Like, unless they're following Jesus, I, why would you think the, the way that I think? But the scriptures prepare us to be ready for friction, 
to suffer shame if need be for the name of Jesus who calls us to something different and something better, something other than the world's buffet has to offer. Take another hot button value in our culture, wealth. The scripture calls it mammon. The church in America talks a lot about issues like abortion or immigration or sex. Meanwhile, greed and fear seem to kind of just go unchecked. Like it's just, hey, I'm going with the flow of culture. As disciples of Jesus, I think we're called to do more than just flowing with the national average of spending and saving. Like if we fit in the mean or the average, then, well, we're not too greedy and we're not too poor. We're just cruising under the radar. See, we're called to be stewards of our resources in such a way that they're available for beauty and joy. That means you can enjoy your resources, but also for neighbor's good and to be at the disposal of God when he requires them. One of the biggest lies I see in the national scene is this false binary between jobs and security versus environmental stewardship. And, and, and we get scared into thinking because of greed that we need to make a decision and fit aside. Either we keep people working in jobs that are bad for creation, or we're led to believe that we have to militantly oppose all industry to attain some unattainable return to wildness where we're all eating granola and wearing loincloths or something. Disciples should not fall into this binary trap by these two ridiculous options provided to us not by the Bible or by our Lord, but by the world. We're not to be pushed into polarized camps. Instead, we reconcile through creativity and perseverance and persistence. And if you start to do that and push and to ask questions, it's going to put you in the crosshairs, both of certain industries and certain ideologies. Faithfulness may cause us to cry now so we can have joy later. Or take sexual ethics now that we're on a roll. Disciples of Jesus are called to different sexual ethics than the world. We can't expect our, our friends and neighbors who don't follow Jesus to agree with the same sexual ethics of the Jesus way. But our lifestyles should be different. And that's going to challenge us. You know, the hot button topic right now is same-sex relationships in the church. And that's not going away. And I feel like same-sex relationships get unfairly singled out. In fact, we've talked about that quite a bit in our own context, in our own backyard. But if we're followers of the Jesus way, then we're going to suffer shame for what we think and how we live for our whole sexual ethic. You know, we're called as followers of Jesus to celibacy unless we're married. That's a thing. In a highly sexualized culture, that will immediately make us different. It will require self-discipline and grace. As followers of the Jesus way, we're called to fidelity in marriage. If you look in the, in the latest versions of the Webster Dictionary, starter marriage is now just an accepted term. It's just, it's a thing. You know, so we live in a culture where, ah, my marriage didn't work out, I'm just going to bail. Like, that's not an option to a follower of the Jesus way, unless there's, like, some biblical reason for divorce. Like, that's a very different way of seeing things. Try that around the water cooler conversation at your work. 
right? I mean, it's just, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause friction. I'm not saying that you need to go like, hey, uh, you're not a follower of Jesus, but you shouldn't live this way. That's not what I'm saying. Don't do that. You'll be a butthead. We don't expect people who don't follow Jesus to live that way. But if we are going to follow him, then it, it requires something of us. And we will rub up against that. You're going you're to be weird. You're going to be weird. Most people don't live the Jesus way. We follow a king, Jesus, who calls intentional lust, Matthew 5, as the same thing as adultery. That's, that's insane. That's intense. So that means following Jesus requires a sexual ethic that denies the consumption of pornography. That in itself will put us at odds with coworkers and roommates and the vast majority of Americans. Now we also know statistically not just male Americans, but female Americans. If you follow Jesus, you're going to stand out, and you'll likely suffer shame on behalf of your allegiance to him. Consider the joy of the apostles. Their joy is not like, yeah, we're suffering, and it's not in general suffering. Like, they're not rejoicing when uh, one of them gets cancer, or one of their children dies, or a spouse, you know, or their marriage is up. They're not just rejoicing over crazy suffering. But they're rejoicing for the opportunity to be loyal to the Lord who's loyal to them. They suffer for proclaiming Jesus and living in his way. With all this talk about suffering for Jesus as part of discipleship, it is important to remember good news. There is good news in every passage of scripture. And the good news here is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus suffered as well. And he did it with a purpose, to save us. Did you know, you probably did, that the cross wasn't just an instrument of death. Like, there's a lot of easier way to kill people. But primarily, it was a, an instrument of shame. Public nudity was extremely shameful. And you were stripped down and nailed to this cross where it might take days to die as birds do their thing on your living, half-dead body, exposed to everyone who walks by. And the Roman way, would, they would put it on the road leading into every major city. And the statement is this, if you try what they did, the same thing's coming for you. And if you put someone's leader on one of those crosses as an instrument of shame in a shame-based culture, you might think twice about following them Maybe they weren't who they said they were if they got crucified by the empire. In verse 30 of our passage, the Greek literally says that they hung Jesus on a tree. That's not the way people in the first century talked about crucifixion. This reference is almost certainly referring to Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, which is all about shame. It's about what happens to a person when they're cursed or shamed publicly. And the point of that is that Jesus suffered shame and death to take our shame and death. Isn't that amazing? So when the scriptures call us to take up our crosses and follow Jesus, part of what that means is to follow Jesus into shame. 
Shame is one of the costs of discipleship. But that is exactly why Jesus gives us encouraging promises like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Or, as Marta said, cry in the beginning, so you may smile in the end. Suffering shame for the name is but one of the costs of discipleship. But it is the cost that we see in this passage. Whomever you make your master, you will find a cost attached to it. But no other master will rescue you for eternity, make you whole, or usher you by the hand vigorously into an eternal life of joy. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I first of all thank you for suffering shame on my behalf for the behalf of my sisters and brothers, and for all your creation. Thank you that you don't call us into a life of, um, that you're not willing to live and even exceed. Lord, we confess our fearfulness. I cringe as I prepared this sermon, Lord. Just, I don't like to, I don't like to ruffle feathers or to feel shame or to feel odd or different. But you're so loyal to us even when we are unloyal. And I pray that we would take seriously this call to live differently, to, to follow you into eternal life, into the good life, a life that is oftentimes at odds with the way of the world but a life that's truer and lasting and in your presence. So empower us, Lord. We're weak. Empower us to live this life. We need you. Amen.